0: Hi everyone, it's Abadessi, your host of Product Hunt Radio, where I'm joined by the founders, investors, and makers that are shaping the future of tech. Today, I'm joined by April Wenzel, CEO and founder of Compassionate Coding. I'm a huge fan of the work that April does to make the tech industry more productive and more inclusive, sharing learnings from her journey as a tech leader herself, building engineering teams. In this episode, we cover a lot. It'll be a really helpful one for anyone out there who wants to be a better engineer or wants to build a better engineering team. We talk about what you can do to avoid creating a toxic culture, what you can do to be an ally and support underrepresented individuals as they build their engineering careers. And of course, we discuss her favorite products. April, thank you so much for joining us on Product Hunt Radio today. I've really been looking forward to this interview and this conversation because you are definitely one of my favorite people on Twitter. I often find myself nodding at my MacBook screen when I read the things that you're sharing and talking about. For folks who aren't super familiar with you and the work that you do, please tell us who you are
1: and what you're working on. Sure. And thanks so much for the kind words. I'm really excited to be here too. So thank you for having me. Uh, so, Compassionate Coding is my company, and I started it in 2016. And essentially, I teach other software engineers like myself how to care more about people in their work and their lives in general. That's amazing. I
0: love this approach that you're taking because I think it's so important. Um, using myself as an example, Before I joined the tech industry, and even many times throughout the years that I've been in it, there have been times where the technical side of things felt very unapproachable and kind of daunting and a bit intimidating. And I think this idea of like bringing more of like compassion and like humanity into it is extremely compelling, just like on an individual level, because I would like to feel more included in it, but I just feel like also on a broader level. And I just wonder, was this a solution born out of a personal problem you were facing?
1: It is, yeah. It's sort of a a combination uh, solution to a lot of problems that I saw. So, you know, I was working in the industry as a software engineer and leading engineering teams uh, for about 10 years myself. And on a personal level, you know, I went through periods of feeling burnout, which is one of the one of the problems uh, that I see in the industry. Uh, I was also just kind of frustrated looking around and seeing you know the lack of diversity in tech. I think when I first started out, I didn't think so much about it because I thought, oh, I'm just an engineer. I didn't really think of myself as you know, like a woman engineer or anything like that. But once I got in the actual industry, I saw that you know people did treat you differently, and you did have to work harder just to be treated like you know, a normal person. And so that was another issue. And, uh, you know, I didn't find much fulfillment in the work I was doing f- for the large part. <laughs> I was doing a lot. You know, I, I worked on like social games at one point early ba- back when social games were kind of new and, you know, <laughs> social games, some people get enjoyment out of them, sure. But there are also some kind of dark patterns that were used back in those days. So anyway, so I saw all of these and I thought, you know, the common thread here is that We don't think a lot about uh, the people who are involved in tech and affected by tech. We're mostly focused on like, oh, this hot new technology or whatever. And uh, so it kind of came from that. Um, That's sort of what inspired me to start something to kind of change how we think about technology from the level of the software engineer, since that's where I was coming from.
0: I love this mission to change the way we think about technology, change the way we approach software engineering. Um, I definitely want to dive more into that uh, in a bit. I kind of want to rewind to when you were leading teams. What were any observations that you made or any experiments that you tried when you were leading engineering teams that made you think, huh, there is a business idea here? There needs to be more work done in this space of compassionate coding.
1: Well, so one thing that comes to mind, because I was actually tweeting about this recently, so it's like top of my mind, is that when I first hired an engineering team, it was 50% women of color like right out of the box and it wasn't even hard for me to do that because i knew the things that always bugged me when i would have to interview for software engineering jobs like being put on the spot answering trivia questions doing whiteboarding in front of usually a panel of people who looked nothing like me and so when i had the chance to do the hiring i was like all right we're not going to do any of this what we're going to do is just have conversations with people about what they're interested in the kind of work they've done before kind of gauge you know how Interested therein, both in what we're doing and in learning more about the technologies we're using. Uh, And so it opened up, you know, the possibilities there in terms of the hiring. You know, I didn't feel there was a talent shortage at all because, uh, you know, I I kept interviewing a bunch of great candidates. And certainly there were some who weren't a great fit and we didn't end up hiring. It's not like I hired anyone. But uh, that was one where that's something I see, you know, people, uh, engineering leaders saying, oh, I just don't know where to find good candidates. And I'm like, because you're not really looking. And so that was one example. And uh, it was such a great team with different perspectives. And it was just more so much more interesting than working with a bunch of clones, you know? Yeah, that
0: is incredible. I've had conversations with CTOs and hiring managers about In their mind, almost a clash of ideas between trying to find the best talent and also trying to source the most diverse candidates. So it's really interesting that you kind of like set out with the intention of building the best team and ended up with 50% women of color when so many people say they struggle to find those engineers. Digging a bit deeper into that, I can already maybe hear some of our audience members thinking, oh, she didn't do whiteboard. She didn't do like technical tasks. How did she guarantee that they could fulfill the responsibilities of the role? So what were the ways that you assess that with this approach that you took?
1: Yeah. So that's a really good question. So In one case, one of the women came up to me after a meetup, because I did sort of a pitch. I went up at a meetup and I was, because I was leading engineering, so I was really excited about getting engineers. So I I said, hey, we're hiring, you know, come talk to me. And she came up and and she was this very shy woman. And she asked me about, you know, like, oh, is there going to be like a coding test and all this stuff? Because she, she, you know, she's like me. It's like, we're good engineers, but we know that those tests don't always uh, give us the chance to show our strengths. And so I said, no, (laughs) that's not how I do things. And so instead what she did, because... I sort of give people the opportunity to show their strengths in the ways they want to and then see how that's a fit for what we're looking for. So in her case, she was an uh, Android engineer and she brought in a bunch of code that she had written for past projects. And so it wasn't just like you know she handed it over and I was like, okay, that's code. All right, you can code. Let's do it. It was more like it led to in-depth discussions about how she went about gathering requirements for that, how she went about deciding, you know, um, how to implement certain things, walking me through the code, explaining things to me, all of those sort of skills that are really important when you're working on a team. And so that's how we spent the conversation um, in the interview is her showing this code and sort of explaining it. And, you know, not everybody, though, that's one example, not everybody has a large set of code. For example, I don't. My GitHub's pretty uh, slim, and it's because most of the code was written for companies. And so I can't, you know, share it. So um, in those cases, I still don't think you need to do a coding exercise or a whiteboarding exercise. I think what you can do is discuss problem solving, you know, on a technical level, because that's really, I think, one of the most important skills as a software engineer is not memorizing syntax or being able to code something up really fast on the spot. It's more, Here's a challenging problem that we've faced or that uh, we could potentially face. Like, walk me through how you would go about solving that problem. And it's more of a conversation. And then you ask follow up questions like, okay, but what if then we have to do it this way? Or then the customer asks for this new thing. Like, how would you go about that? You know, things like that where you, it it turns into like an evolving conversation, but you talk about like architecture, how to choose frameworks, how to do, you know, work through refactoring problems. So that's another technique. And then one other one I'll throw out there is doing a code review of your code. So if, if you're at a company and you have some code that you can share Uh, whether it's open source or whether you just have some toy project and then let the um, let the candidate do code review of your code, uh, because that shows how they think about code and reason about code without forcing them to, you know, write code from a blank, you know, on the spot, like from a blank page. So that's another uh, creative idea. That's amazing.
0: As I'm listening to these various tactics and strategies that you tried, I'm blown away by the creativity in which you've explored these routes, because I feel in a way, and this is feedback that I hear from my peers and you know women I know who are sort of breaking into tech after the boot camp route. There's almost a, a template or like cookie cutter way of uh, hiring candidates, very much inspired by like the big tech companies, like these mature public, huge, huge companies. And I think what I really like is that when you were leading that team, you were a bit more creative in your approach. You talked about going to this event and kind of like pitching the jobs to like get candidates to come into you. I have two follow-up questions. One of them is, do you feel that the approach you took, you know, was time consuming or do you feel that like the, the results kind of like made it worth it in terms of ROI? And then secondly, since it is a more novel way of building an engineering team versus like the existing more common strategies, were you pleased with the results of the people that you actually hired in terms of like the long run contributions to the team?
1: Yeah. So to the first point about the the time that I put into it, I would say it actually took a lot less time than than most of the processes that I've been put through or forced to like implement when I didn't have as much power because, you know, we didn't have a full day of like, you know, six interviews and all this stuff. It was like, it was more like okay you're a human person let me have a conversation with you about your the technical side of what you do and you know the the code that you do so you know i think each of those interviews was like half an hour and we just you know talked through the code and it also took less prep work i'll say on my part right because i didn't have to come up with some you know i didn't have to open up cracking the coding interview and just pull some questions like a lot of engineers do which is also kind of ridiculous because then people teach classes on how to pass the coding interview, but it has nothing to do with like actually writing code in a production environment. But anyway, that's part, part of the, uh, that's more of like a symptom of the problem than the actual problem. Uh, cause that's a, that's a fine book to get through a lot of these silly processes. But anyway, um, so, you know, I think, actually think it took, you know, less time or about the same if, if, you know, engineers aren't doing any prep work at all, then uh, it's about the same. But no, I, I didn't feel like, you know, the the meetup I was actually going to anyway, just, you know, for networking to meet people to listen, learn about new tech. And so it took, you know, five minutes on the spot of just going up there and uh, and pitching the, the idea. So I don't think so. And and again, what was interesting too, like, it wasn't a woman in tech meetup or anything. That was just a typical meetup. I think it's just because I was a woman up there. So it was clear that already the company, you know, had some diversity. It. Yeah. So that was part of oh, it. That's awesome. And then to your other question, that's so cool. thank you. Yeah. To the other question, what came to mind about that was those more established methods. There's no proof that those work either. Cause to be honest, those existing methods of how to fire software engineers, there have not been like studies on this to show their like efficacy. Uh, we see in the retention rate, especially at startups, but just in tech in general are so low. And so, you know, you can't, there's no real like proof that those methods are good. And they have gotten us the results we have now, which is kind of a broken industry, you know, based on some of the problems I was talking about earlier. So for one, I actually don't think there is like um, a trustworthy method. There's what we've always done, but with no real indication that that's been good, or, you know, the most the best way. So with this one, though, I will say, you know, My, uh, I guess one way I gauge it, sort of in a subjective way, is that I had a male CEO at the time. And so he didn't code, but, you know, he could speak some of the lingo there. And he was very, you know, reticent about a lot of these things I was trying to try because he, you know, was used to the very traditional way of doing things. And he, you know, the the shy engineer I mentioned, he was nervous about that because he was a very extroverted person. And he's like, I don't know, is she gonna be able to communicate all these things? And pretty much to all of the ones I wanted to hire, he was like a little bit like iffy. And then he was blown away by how great they were, like just how fast they produce code. Well, this is what happens, especially when like, you know, women are under underestimated is that like we blow people out of the water because People have such low expectations about what we're gonna do. And yet, of course, we're awesome. So uh so they th- these <laughs> women were awesome. And uh, you know, and this was across Ruby on Rails uh coders, Android, uh, and iOS, and just all like fantastic. And uh yeah, and then you know, there was no performance issues uh during the tenure there. And yeah, and they loved working in the yeah, the fact that uh the guy became a believer, that CEO, I think was uh was good. And, and just the fact that, yeah, we we're interacting with customers well, all of that. So uh, for me, it was like, yeah, it was a win. There were no no regrets there. That's incredible.
0: I feel like this relates to another topic I wanted to discuss with you. You touched on it a bit earlier. It's this idea of a pipeline problem. I feel like what this example shows is that it's like mostly illusory, like it doesn't really exist. And I just wonder, like, what kind of advice or like learnings can you share with folks who are listening who like genuinely believe, you know, these diverse candidates, whether it's women engineers or other underrepresented backgrounds from their team? you know, if, if they believe that they're not out there, like what words can you share to encourage them to perhaps rethink that opinion or their approach?
1: Yeah. So I think that, you know, the pipeline problem when you, when you said it, like I sort of like giggled internally a little bit because I think it's, you know, it's often used as sort of like an excuse and like, and, oh, there's just not candidates. But, you know, from my perspective, like, you know, even on social media and then also just in, in my like groups that I'm in for, for women. And, you know, I have a lot of friends from other groups as well. And you see that, They're struggling to find jobs, even though, like I know from you know speaking with them that they would be great engineers anywhere, but they don't get those opportunities because they're ruled out early in the process for arbitrary reasons. Like you mentioned having friends coming from boot camps. Like I know from being in those hiring conversations behind closed doors, there's such a negative attitude, even still towards boot camp grads. Like, you know, that they're not gonna be you know, as good engineers, which I think is just so ridiculous. I I went through the traditional computer science background, you know, and when I graduated from that, I had so much fewer practical skills than these bootcamp grads. They're like so much better, you know, after a few months, a few weeks, because, you know, they build actual products where, you know, projects and products. And I was, you know, like learning algorithms, which, you know, is important too. But as far as like practical building these startups that most people want to build, the people from boot camps can do a much better job straight out of the boot camp than you know most people you're going to find straight out of a computer science program. So I think one thing is just broadening your sense of like what a good engineer looks like, and also, you know, I know a lot of times it's like, oh, if you if you coded on in your spare time on these side projects, that's how I know you're really passionate about technology. And I think, like personally, I'm not passionate necessarily about the code itself, I see the code as a means to an end. So I want to write good code, but it's because I'm more passionate about what we're building and how it's going to help society or people or whatever. So like sometimes recruiters will still reach out to me, even though, you know, I'm doing my own company now. And they'll, they'll pitch it to me as like, here's our stack. Here's our, here's the people came from like X Facebook, X Google. And I'm just like rolling my eyes thinking, okay, but what does the product actually do? Like, what would I be building? And yeah. when I ask them that they're like, oh, so you want to be a product manager? And I said, no, I just, I want to know like what the code would be. And I, I do I ask them these questions anyway, just because since I'm not looking like it's just sort of an experiment for me. But it's interesting that like this, even the way we recruit people, it's like advertising like, oh, you have to use this fancy new framework or oh, you can use a functional programming language or whatever. So anyway, so I think to rethinking like what the kind of pattern is that you're looking for in the engineers themselves. Like they might not have side projects. They might just code on the job because they care about what you're doing. And that's perfectly acceptable too. That's such great advice. I think you're right. There's often
0: too much rigidity in in terms of how folks approach hiring. I'm thinking of the tweet that you sent out yesterday, where it was like, you know, a quote, that it's like, Oh, I want to like hire more diverse candidates, but I don't want to change anything about how I structure my recruitment process, reach out to candidates or assess them. And it's true, like how how can you change anything if you're not willing to change yourself or change your process? So I think it's really important to highlight that. And I know it can be difficult, especially perhaps in like bigger organizations which are less agile, but certainly for startups um, and just like earlier stage teams, I think being open-minded is absolutely worth it and ultimately, you know, measure the results of that and see what happens. I think that there, there are a lot of teams who are probably trying and failing to bring in more underrepresented candidates. And they perhaps have been in that state for a number of years. And I think, you know, it gets to that point where it's like, where does the problem really lie? Because it becomes hard to believe that it is only an external thing when everyone else seems to be able to achieve it. I mean, you were able to achieve it in one of your first times leading a tech team, which is incredible. So yeah, that's really cool. I wanted to switch gears a little bit and talk about the technical, non-technical divide and the general technical versus non-tech. You wrote a really good blog post about this earlier this year entitled, If You Can Use a Fork, You're Technical. <laughs> so I hear a lot, particularly like at events that I go to where I'm in a mentoring role or like motivating role, people coming up to me afterwards, and very often women, but if not women, like maybe other underrepresented backgrounds, saying to me, I would love to work in tech but I'm not technical. Uh, And that always really brings me down because I just think, you know, I studied economics and I'm still working in tech. I've worked at a bunch of tech companies from Product Hunt to Amazon. And then secondly, to the point that you make in your article, which I'll ask you to elaborate on, the tension that can exist in a super unproductive way between like technical and non-technical roles within a company. I feel really grateful that at Product Hunt we are very like project oriented in how we build and grow so usually you'll have you know a product manager and an engineer and a community person working in sync from the very beginning and i know that's not always the case so i kind of just wanted to like give you the floor and share some of the thoughts that you have you know around this idea of like yeah if you can use a fork
1: you are technical yeah yeah well you know i was i was always hearing this term non technical and you know oh this person doesn't seem technical enough and so the the first thing you talked about when people call themselves non technical yeah that's heartbreaking because i feel like they're putting themselves in this box or at least keeping themselves out of a box and limiting their possibilities and like basically saying you know yeah like th- that's like when people say oh i'm just not creative like these things where it's such a fixed way of looking at the world. That's just not true. You know, like this whole growth mindset idea from Carol Dweck is this idea that we can grow these skills. So whatever like coding skills these people are actually talking about, they can grow those skills. But whatever skills they have even are technical, as you mentioned, like economics, that's totally a technical field. People like using spreadsheets to, um, you know, look at funnels, like uh, sales funnels and things like that, audience funnels, like th- that's, a, that's a technical task. And I think anything where you go really deep on it is is technical. And that's why I think, you know, I I took it to the extreme and said that, you know, just using any sort of tools is technical uh, of any sort. And that's why if you can use a fork, you're technical it's also just such like a kind of negative way to to view people, like phrasing it in terms of something they lack, which, you know, is never good either. So I just think this term is is way overused. And, And the reason I even wrote that article while I was finally inspired to write it was I was out to dinner with someone I was mentoring and she was telling me that she kept getting rejected from jobs. Because they said she wasn't technical enough. And I was like, oh, like, seriously, this is still happening? Because that's what used to happen when I was in these hiring conversations, where I was the only person who wasn't from the overrepresented group, let's just say. And they would say, yeah, you know, something about, I mean, just didn't seem technical enough. And it was almost always someone from an underrepresented group. And I'm just like, yeah, because... That's just a vague way of saying, like, this person doesn't fit my stereotype view of, like, what an engineer is. So a lot of times it's used to conceal a lot of our biases. And so that's another reason I really don't like the term. People, and and like I'm telling you, these engineers uh, at some companies will be talking, and and non-technical is also a way of saying, like, I don't know, it's almost like a, a code word for uh, not, not that skilled or not that competent or, or like their opinion doesn't matter. You know, it's sort of a shorthand for that without actually saying that, uh, at least, you know, in private conversations. And so I just think that's really harmful because all of the roles in whether they involve coding or not in a startup are super important. I mean, otherwise they wouldn't be there, you know, Uh, because we try to keep things to, you know, in the lean way to whatever we need. And so all these roles are essential. Like coding is one thing, yes, but it's not the thing. It's not the only thing. A lot of times people use non-technical when they really just mean this person doesn't write code every day. In which case, you know, one, do you really need to make that distinction for any material reason? Or are you just kind of You know, being kind of arrogant about the fact that you code and this other person doesn't. And so, usually, I really don't think we even need the term anymore technical, non technical. I think there's other things to use, like, oh, this person, this many years of experience with Python, or whatever it is, be more specific rather than using this sort of vague term. And also, again, never say it about yourself, I would say, like, because, you know, think about these days, like, we all use our little phones, our smartphones. You know, even people who use computers. I mean, back in the day, people used to put a lot of like basic computer skills on their resume because those were seen as, you know, the technical skills. And so people who have those these days, yeah, they're more widespread, but those are still technical skills, you know? So I really think that everybody in some way could be seen as technical. And so calling someone non-technical is a great way to, or calling yourself non-technical, limit their view of themselves or limit your view of them and really prevent good collaboration between people who code, people who don't code, people who provide other services and actually understand people and understand why we're building products in the first place. And their perspective is essential for a successful company.
0: Yeah, it's incredible because there's so much that you said there. I mean, I hear conversations, whether it's like with teammates or with family members, where people, you know, label themselves as non-technical and exactly as you said you know they're using their smartphone every day they're playing around with digital products they're building websites with no code solutions all those things require technical expertise and it's like horrifying that we kind of just make it so binary, you know, like you're technical or you're not. I don't think that's really helping us that's helping anyone, especially because technology is not going anywhere and we really want to become more fluent in it and more confident in our relationship with it and how we interact with it. I also like the reminder that there was a time when we would put on our resumes or CVs all of the technical skills. I remember my very first uh, resume and putting down, like, all the software applications I could use, like, pro- you know, proficient in Microsoft Word and Excel, and it's crazy that I did all that stuff and now, like, still put myself in a bucket of being a non-technical person. Why? Because, you know, I'm on an engineering team and I don't spend my day writing code. So you're right. It's not great, whether on an individual level, company level, or a society level, and, it also makes me um, think about conversations I have, like often with women or maybe with like older family relatives, where they just put themselves in this bucket of being like, you know, technophobic or like technologically, like you know, incompetent. And I just think, you know, you're you're interacting with technology all the time. Like, okay, fork is like an extreme example, but you know, like remote controls or you know, driving a car. And I do think it's important for folks to reflect on the ways they interact with machines or applications and remember that software is just another instance of that or you know things that live in the cloud are just another instance of that so i think that's a really important reminder and i'm grateful for that so i know that many of our listeners spend most of their day in gmail and google calendar and drive pretty typical stuff And typically, you're managing relationships with anyone from freelancers, to clients, to investors, to vendors, to partners, to customers. You get the idea, it's a lot. But what if there's a way to remember every name instantly, find every email thread, even from weeks ago, and never forget to follow up on anything again? Cause let's face it, who has the time for that? That's what copper's for. It's your designated relationship manager, built to look and feel like the G Suite apps you know and love. Actually, it's recommended for G Suite by Google Cloud. Plus, it lets every team, sales, marketing, customer success, and even product talk to each other and share updates all in one place. If that doesn't sound like a CRM, you're right. Copper isn't your average CRM. See for yourself. Check out copper.com/product to try a 14-day free trial. I wanted to talk a bit about this idea of like toxic elitism or like the elitism that exists in tech. This term, you know, (laughs) RTFM, which gets bounded around a lot, inspired an article that you wrote about it. The way I wanted to approach this was to talk about like some of the instances you share there and and what could be seen as toxic elitism or, or, or what kind of behaviors or sayings or Attitudes could be seen as excluding people. Um, And the reason that I say that is I suspect that there are a lot of um, engineers out there with the best of intentions who are using terms like RTFM, sending them back in Slack, not maybe realizing the consequences of it. So I'd love to give you the floor to just kind of like dig a bit deeper into that so that folks who are listening might go, oh gosh, I do that. I should probably do less of that.
1: Yeah. It, well, it's funny because a lot of times I think RTFM and, and for, you know, probably most people get it, but it's like read the uh, flipping manual or, or something like that. And it's basically a term that people use when it's they're trying to tell somebody like, "I'm not going to answer that question that you asked instead, like go read the manual and figure it out for yourself is essentially it. Uh, there was that whole website, "Let me Google that for you," where if somebody asked you a question, I love yeah, that which is like it's it's funny, right? because if you're if you're with like joking around with friends, it could totally be like a fun thing. So it often comes from a good place because it's like, I want you to learn how to help yourself so rather than give you the answer I'm going to you know inspire you to go look for the answer. The problem is that that gets lost when you just give a very blunt RTFM because it's like you know usually I know for myself like I was always very paranoid about asking questions because I didn't want to be perceived as incompetent, especially as a woman in tech. And I think this affects a lot of people from underrepresented groups that we're especially sensitive to how we're being perceived. And so we don't want to show any signs of weakness. And so I was like terrified of asking a question rather than figuring out myself. So I would unproductively spend like a whole day troubleshooting something like when I first started a job, when it was like would have taken a minute if I just would have asked somebody. So I would be digging through like the the archives of the wiki page and all these things like, okay, I got to figure this out on my own. Uh, and really, it was just like a simple fix from you know asking somebody. But I was so terrified because I didn't want to fall into that category of like, oh, April can't figure stuff out on her own. So uh, I think that that comes from this culture that uses things like RTFM. Because when you use it, it's basically implying like, I'm not going to help you. And you should feel kind of ashamed that you didn't help yourself first. So it doesn't acknowledge the fact that someone may have, like me, already tried a lot of things it doesn't give the person the benefit of the doubt. It's basically assuming, oh, this person's just lazy and can't figure things out and you know is trying to leech off of me and to get uh, the answer without trying for themselves. And you see like this sort of attitude too on, on websites like Stack Overflow, where it's like, you know, they don't, I think that one of their rules is you can't actually use the phrase RTFM, but a lot of times people use phrases that basically communicate like RTFM. And it, it, it relates to the toxic elitism that you started out the conversation with, because it's almost like, it's so ridiculous to talk about but it's 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 the sense that coding's kind of like if you can code you're in this like special exclusive club and um these people are like so smart and and that's that's the elitism side and so you know if you want to be in this club like you got to figure stuff out for your own like i'm not just going to tell you the answer i'm not going to you know and so What's been missing is this sort of like, how do we get new people into this club? Like, how do we provide mentorship to, you know, grow this club so that we can build all the technology solutions we need to build? So yeah, instead of RTFM, I think you can still help someone help themselves, but I might send something like, you know, have you tried this? Where this is, you know, something that like reading a manual. It's like, oh, did you check out this documentation? Like, did, did that help? Or did you try this page? Or, you know, depending on the context. Uh, you know, if I were dealing with that, I'd probably uh, search for this, this, and this, you know, just, it's kind of just in how you communicate it. And I think that that can be really helpful to, you know, help somebody learn what to search for. Cause that's the thing is when you first start out coding, you don't necessarily know what search terms to use because if you get an error message, some of the error message is going to contain words that are specific to the program you're writing. And to have an effective web search, you usually need to make it more general so even knowing which parts are general and which parts are specific to your environment or whatnot is really challenging. And so you might not know what to Google. You might not know what to search for. You might not know where the manual page is or how to access it. So sometimes it's just better to be able to ask someone and you don't want to be scared of doing that. And so I just don't think we ever need to use that term.
0: Yeah, definitely. What you're talking about speaks so much to what are the cultures companies or leaders can cultivate in which individuals thrive and perform at their best. And, you know, the point you're making here or one of the many great points you're making here is that that can be perceived as like super dismissive and ultimately not be productive. Like the person who asks for help walks away with no support, no solution. And then there's that sort of like additional layer of like emotional distress that comes with being rejected, you know, feeding into your insecurities, etc. I wanted to like Kind of uh, keep building on this idea of like culture and and cultivating cultures in which we can thrive, in which engineers can create their best work. You've spoken a lot in the past on social media about how women engineers in uh, women-only spaces rarely talk about technical challenges or you know the challenges of their work. Rather, what they talk about are the challenges of navigating toxic culture. And in addition to, you know, people saying things like, oh, read the friggin' manual or whatever, what are some other common behaviors that you've observed or that uh, women engineers have, have talked about, you know, in terms of like occurring in quite high frequency that perhaps could be things that maybe men engineers don't realize cause issues or don't realize are, are impacting Productivity. Uh, I'll give an example. I was interacting with someone on Twitter, and she had basically like shown some of her work to a colleague. It was like very simple, basic stuff. She was new to the role, and he sort of responded like, "Oh, wow, that's like really great code for a woman." And she was just like, "What is that even supposed to mean?" And he, I think, thought he was giving her a compliment, but the impact of that was just so distressing. So I just wonder like are there any other like observations or or things that you've heard where you're just like this is actually not a positive way to to talk to someone or interact with someone this actually impacts productivity. Yeah,
1: absolutely. And that's such a great example you shared because it's true like sometimes people have positive intentions but their behavior can still be problematic right so that he may have had positive intentions and and the problem in that case is that it creates this like sense that the woman's sort of an outsider right because it's like oh like i'm surprised like you're not part of this club and i'm surprised that you know you're even competent and can produce code and you know it kind of is an othering sort of thing it makes someone feel like an other not part of the group and and yeah so that's 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 part of the problem with that one. Uh, But yeah, so I mean, it it ranges from like, really severe stuff that, you know, is pretty clear, like that it's just, you know, bad stuff happening. But also to just feeling like one would be even like a woman was concerned that well, she noticed she ran this little experiment because you know, she's uh, a coder. And so she's used to like experimenting and things. And she like wore it depending on what she wore so she would wear dresses some days and other days she would kind of wear the uh the hoodie and t-shirt and jeans right and she noticed that people would actually include her more in conversations when she was wearing the the non-dress clothes because everyone else on the team was a man and she wow. noticed this and she, you know she was so she was asking the group this private group she's like you know so should i just you know stop wearing the clothes i really want to wear to fit in and i was just like oh my gosh and like this is something that like guys are never thinking about. They never have to. People in the majority group in general don't have to think about these things. And this is something where, you know, it was really, it was stressing her out because of course the people on her team probably weren't even noticing that. Um, but yeah, like if I were, I know if in my case, like I started out wearing uh, sort of masculine clothes myself. And then when I did start wearing dresses, uh, yeah, my like CEOs would be like this male CEO would be something like, like oh, April, like what, what are you dressed up for today? And just like in front of everyone. And I'm just like, gosh, like, can I just oh my do my gosh. job? And like, even things like I lost weight one time and he was just like, oh yeah, April, I can tell like, you know, you've been running a lot, like your body's changed. And i was just like, oh my gosh, why are you commenting on this at work? Whoa. Yeah. It's like, that gets into like, you know, the extreme territory, but the, the sometimes it's, but you know, it wasn't, again, I don't think it was actually intentional. I think it was more like, I'm not trying to excuse it, but I think that it's sometimes people just don't realize like how much we have to sort of manage how we're presenting at work and everything like that. And so I think that's one thing. But as far as like the subtler stuff, because I think that that's useful too, is you know having your ideas shot down in meetings very confidently by somebody from the majority group, even when they don't know for sure like that they're right and you're wrong. So for example, if a woman pitches an idea and then some guy on the team, she's like, yeah, that'll never work very confidently, even though he doesn't know for sure, but he doesn't say, I don't think that's going to work. He says, no, that'll never work, especially for someone new to the team. She's going to be like, you know, oh gosh, like I feel embarrassed that I even suggested that. I'm never going to suggest an idea again because I don't want to feel this embarrassment. You know, it, it totally makes it a psychologically unsafe environment. So I think that's part of it is that Communication styles are different. And in tech, a lot of times the communication style, partly because of the elitism and the ego is just, let me just communicate this, like, I'm right and you're wrong, even with when that's not known with 100% certainty. And so I think any ways we can change our communication styles to acknowledge that opinions are subjective inherently, and unless we're 100% sure, which we rarely are about anything, you know, to give space for different perspectives. I think that that can be great. So like, that's, that's another example there. But yeah, so a lot of the conversations are about like extreme things like that I kind of alluded to. And then the other ones are these subtler things where people just feel like unsafe to share ideas or they feel like no one listens to them in meetings. That's a lot. That's one thing that a lot of women reach out to me about. Like, I feel like no one's really listening to me. There's this uh, phenomenon of he-peating where it's like, it's like, yeah, yes. it's like a woman will suggest an idea and like, no one will really hear it. And then a guy will say the same idea. And everyone's like, oh, it's such a great idea. And this happened to be one time. And I actually had a video of it because we were, it was a video um, related startup. And so I was doing a test video at the time. And so I, I watched it over and over again. And I heard myself say something. I was talking about like a menu thing on, uh, on iPhone, like interfaces. And I was like, yeah, I think there's a a menu option to do this other thing. And, and then like, no one really said anything. And then a guy said it. And then the the CEO is like on the video was like, oh yeah, definitely let's do that. And I'm like, oh my gosh, (laughs) this is, this is the thing. And so that's another subtle thing is like, we, And there's interesting psychological studies on this that people can read, but sometimes men like tune out women's voices. And I'm not saying they do it all the time, but, you know, sometimes even if women are more soft-spoken or even if men are more soft-spoken, sometimes culturally or personality wise, some men are more soft-spoken and those people are often seen as less confident even if it's not really a confidence issue it's more of like a humility issue like i use the word the phrase i think a lot or i feel women are often advised not to use that because it's like weak language but i think it's more accurate language because it's saying like yeah this is my opinion but i know that it's just an opinion and i wish you know more people in tech would use language like that because then it's not like oh this is the best framework or this is the best programming language we should we should use spaces not tabs like it's like no here's how I see it. And I respect that you may see it a different way. And so I think that's one thing we can do to, to make women feel more comfortable too not just women, but like just everybody.
0: I think that point on, on how we communicate, communication always comes up as like a challenge, the key to success, blah, blah, blah. It's so incredibly nuanced. And exactly like you said, being more intentional and thoughtful in terms of how we communicate with people can go An incredibly long way and I think another thing that's really important to pull out from that is that communication isn't always about what we are saying it's often about how we are listening and I've also been in that situation before where I made a point at the start of a meeting no one acknowledged it a male coworker makes the same point, and everyone's like, "Whoa, <laughs> <Yeah>. good idea!" <laughs> and you know, you just feel so so low in that moment, and you're just like, "Hey, I said the same thing." Um, and and you're absolutely right. You know, research shows that you know men tune out women's voices. Women are more likely to be interrupted. Um, there are so many you know, dynamics at play that science has shown us that also perpetuate these uh, challenges. But I think, like you said. Even just being mindful of these data points, mindful of these examples that you shared, can feed into our consciousness, and then kind of think, okay, actually, hang on. Before I give some feedback here, you know, instead of saying this will never work, you know, thinking of the consequences of that phrase, and instead, you know, trying to deliver this feedback in a more effective way could be really good. And another thing that I wanted to touch on, um, I've noticed a few folks online. Um, a couple of guys in particular recently on Twitter saying, oh, now I'm just afraid to talk full stop because, you know, whatever I say is gonna, you know, hurt someone or et cetera. I have some thoughts on this, which I, would like to share, but I'm curious to hear your view on this. You know, if there is someone listening who's just like, oh, you know, now, you know, I'm worried to talk to the female engineer on my team or, or whatever, what advice can you give um, so that they can continue to have a productive working relationship?
1: Yeah, um, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on that, too. But, uh, yeah, I was actually giving a workshop at a, at a company recently and somebody asked that afterwards. They're like, I'm just afraid to say anything. <laughs> and now, like, I'm just afraid to, like, speak in Slack or in person. Like, I- I'm just afraid. And I, sh- I appreciate when people share that because you know, because it's conveying like a very vulnerable thing. To say you're afraid is a vulnerable thing to say. And so, you know, I appreciate when people share like how they're actually feeling. That said, what I try to do in those uh, situations is turn it around and help them have some compassion, uh, since that's my thing, for, you know, what women and other underrepresented groups have been going through, you know, forever as far as fear goes uh, in terms of, you know, if I wear this dress at work, is something inappropriate going to happen to me, you know, and people are going to blame me and things like that. Like someone's going to say something inappropriate, like I mentioned, happened to me. So imagine the fear that we've been living in forever. And so now that we're having more conversations, yes, it's making men, you know, and other and people from the majority groups be a little more mindful. But, you know, it's, it's something that comes with living in society and dealing with human beings is that, yes, your words are important and it's worth being mindful about them. That said, I also believe that you know, on one hand, we're all biased, right? We all have the potential to say insensitive things, Um, myself included. I think it applies to everybody. And so it's about more... Not being afraid to never make a mistake, but knowing you will make mistakes and being humble enough to admit that, and then to handle it gracefully when somebody points out that you made a mistake or that something you said hurt them, let's say, then or, or, or was offensive, and then knowing how to apologize in a humble way and to commit to doing better. And so I think it's you know again it comes back to this growth mindset that we are this is a learning process for everybody and having just knowing that rather than being afraid to do anything. I mean, that's like saying I never want to code in case I introduce a bug, right? Like, yeah, you will introduce bugs. It's about how you handle it. And so it's the same thing here. It's just you you want to be mindful, you know? So, and there's, and then the other, the last thing I'll say on that is just that there's tons of research out there and articles and guidelines. And that if you're in a majority group, well, really anybody who wants to learn about it, you can help yourself in the same way that you can Google about other stuff And this isn't me saying RTFM, but this is me saying there's so much research out there that if you're actually afraid, you can help um, maybe allay some of those fears by learning, you know, some guidelines by doing some research. But, yeah, I'm interested to hear what you think about this.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Similar points to you, starting on the last thing that you mentioned. The fear of the unknown, the fear of getting it wrong. How do we respond to that in any other context? We do the work. We read about it. We find out more. We try to empathize with the problem or the people. Um, there's, like you said, so much media out there, whether it's a podcast, a TED Talk, a book. If you want to know more about how to be better and how to be an ally for underrepresented people, that's always a good place to start. The other thing I'd also say is like, be focused on the outcomes. I think when people get like too caught up in, you know, what they're, what they're feeling or what they're thinking, they maybe like forget, you know, the outcome that they originally like set out to achieve, which is either to like, uh, you know, retain more diverse candidates or, you know, be more productive when they're interacting with underrepresented teammates. If you stay focused on the outcome, then you probably like move from that place of fear to a place of being more transparent, being more open, being more honest, or, at the very least, being willing to get it wrong in the hope that you will eventually get it right, if that makes sense. And there is, of course, no rule book in this space, but it's just about like finding the right approach for every individual and every team with all the different goals. But yeah, I always just tell people to be outcome-oriented because you know I think of like the first time I was in a business development role and I was afraid to pick up the phone and do my first cold call. What if I mess up? What if the client hates me? What if I get fired? I did it. I survived. I got over it. So uh, I just want people to be very mindful that they're not using that as a cop out, because it's a challenging task sometimes to be more empathetic or to understand the experiences of an identity that's different to yours. You know, we are adults, and it is harder to adapt the older we get. But yeah, just I just want to make sure that people aren't using that as as an excuse, especially since so much of tech is founded on curiosity like so much of what we do is you know feeding our curiosity it would be at odds with that if one was suddenly not curious about the experiences of others identities
1: i love all of that i love everything you said just now that's so that's so fantastic yeah i really appreciate that perspective cool so
0: i wanted to ask you about your favorite products but before i do you've given a lot of advice here you've given a lot of sort of mental tools and frameworks that will help people be better engineers and be better leaders. I wondered if you could speak briefly about what compassionate coding does in terms of equipping people to be better coders, better engineers, and to build better engineering teams. What is the approach that you take with clients? Because I'm curious to know.
1: Yeah, so um, you know, it's one thing to be inspired to do this stuff, and then it's another actually implementing it. So I focus on how to you know have actual practical tools people can use and give them practice using those in a safe space. So usually I work with clients in like a training basis, and so they'll approach me and let me know here's some issues we're having on the team, and we'll have, and then I'll come up with sort of a custom training plan based on that, and then uh, work with the team on it. So I'll come on site and ha- we'll have practice, like you know, discussions about stuff. We'll talk about. How to do code reviews that are compassionate. We'll talk about, you know, hiring or mentoring, uh, giving feedback, and also how to deal with stress, because that's another thing, stress and burnout on the job, anything human related. So the curriculum I train, it's like not just one thing that I do everywhere, because that I would get bored with that. So it's more I try to understand what the clients need, what the team needs, and then shape the training for that to give them some practice learning these, uh using these emotional intelligence skills uh on a daily basis. Um so that's that's a in a nutshell. Uh, how I typically work with uh, clients. And I'm also working on uh, an online course about it so that people that aren't in companies that could hire me to come in for a training can still access it. So that'll be at compassionatecoding.com. Yeah, yeah.
0: Oh, great. So I'd love to hear from you. Being product hunt, we can't let you get away without telling (laughs) us about some of the products that you love. So, you know, from hardware to software, what are some of the tech products that you love, you rely on, or you can't live
1: without? (laughs) Sure. Yeah. Now, now this is where the point and you're going to be like, oh, I should never have had her on this podcast. No, (laughs) I'm just kidding. Because the truth is I'm such a minimalist that there's, there's like, I went through this period where I just like, like deleted a bunch of apps. Like, you know, I use Twitter all the time. I don't even have the Twitter app. I just, I open up the mobile, I open up Safari and go to the mobile page. It's partly like to discourage me from overusing it. I know. I know. But, I know, I know. So you're gonna be like, okay, now this is now this podcast, we're gonna have to throw it away. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) But no, but actually, I I do have a couple that I find really um, useful. So, you know, I use things like Strava, because I am really into running. And so that's something that I use. um, And I do have the app for that, because that that, it's hard to do all that through a a mobile uh, web app. But you know, I do travel a lot as part of compassionate coding. And so, and I'm also vegan. Uh, That's, you know, how I got into compassion and everything. So one thing I use is this website and they have an app to happy cow, uh, happy cow.net, interestingly enough. And uh, what they do is like people share where you can get vegan food anywhere in the world, like at restaurants. And what's useful about that. Yeah. is like, I, you know, get to a place and I'm like, I don't know where I'm going to find like vegan food. And so that's really helpful. Their their website could probably use a refresh uh, from a technical angle, but hey, it's all about utility, you know? Um, so that's one that, uh, that I really like. And then, you know, it's funny, I've never tried these like meditation apps like Headspace um, and stuff like that because I kind of feel like, Meditation is a good way to get away from apps and technology. However, that said, I do use this website, uh, terrabrock.com She's like, um, yeah, she has really great guided meditations. And sometimes, you know, that really helps me relax, you know, to get away from that. But yeah, I think my my favorite product is probably um, Mother Nature. And uh, I like going out in that. <laughs> um, it's not an actual product. Uh, I just meant nature. <laughs> um, but I no, I you. think I think it's about balance. Like I think when you have products that do improve your life, like... You know, that's great. I mean, you know, especially like health products and stuff for people. And that, like, I have a friend now um, dealing with type 1 diabetes and he has this um, continuous glucose monitor that's like, you know, saves his life. So I think technology can be really, really great. Um, It's just I keep it to a minimum in terms of like my life just because that makes me happier.
0: Yes, I feel you. Um, I was talking to someone earlier today about how I'm trying to keep up with like a regular digital detox, just having one day a week where I do not have my phone on I do not have my phone on me it forces me to go outside interact with my friends like in a more focused way Um, and also just set healthier boundaries with technology I think working in the startup space working in tech I spend many 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 hours in front of a screen and like you I love nature and I just sometimes feel like I am not exploring it enough so um, yeah I really appreciate that so um, where can people find you and find Compassionate Coding if they want to follow up after listening to this
1: sure yeah so CompassionateCoding.com is like you know kind of the central place Uh, I've got a lot of like content up there and I've got a mailing list that I let people know about news and stuff and that's where I'll announce like when the online course is like ready for registration and whatnot and of course I use Twitter it's at April Wenzel and at compassion code, just given the character limits.
0: Amazing. Well, April, thank you so much for joining us on Product Hunt Radio today.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's been great. Thanks for tuning in. We'll be back next week. But in the meantime, share the podcast with your friends on Twitter and tag a guest you'd like to hear in a future episode. See you soon.